Would you take your Bible this morning and turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Um, we're just going to read one verse right at the end of Titus chapter 2 and then read part of chapter 3 together this morning. If you are age 3 or 4 or kindergarten age, you can head to the back um, and Miss Sarah will take you to your classroom this morning. Titus chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 15 and I'm going to read through chapter 3 verse 8. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's still one on the table back there, and then there's a handful in the back underneath the, the, the table with the giving box. You can feel free to pick one of those up at any point during the service, and I would encourage you actually to do so right now, because having these words in front of you this morning will greatly help our time together. If you're looking at the words that we're talking about, that we're seeing together here in Scripture, uh, you will understand that these words are not coming from me up here, but coming from Jesus Christ. And these words are are as if Jesus Christ were here this morning speaking directly to us. So I'm going to read verse 15 in chapter 2 and through verse 8 in chapter 3. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to Titus, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, and to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to hope, the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want, to, I, want to insist on, I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God be, may, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. A passage like this one that Paul writes to Titus, a passage like this one, is one that causes some personal reflection right out of the gate for us. Uh, while reflecting on a passage like this, if, the, if you, you came across this in your Bible reading this week, uh, while reflecting, there are those of you who would remember that you experienced some dramatic transformation because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you became convinced of your sin and your sinfulness, uh, you were broken. And so you realize that your life was completely in opposition to what God's word says. And so you were driven to mourning over your sin. You were driven to frustration over what you had attempted to do in your life and the lack of ability that you had to do it. And you repented and you trusted Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins and to make you right with God. And your life, it feels like, even as you sit here this moment, whether it happened 40 years ago or four days ago, your life feels like it did a dramatic 180. From 
living in complete darkness to living in light. Your life did a 180 in the way that it looks externally. But for some of you in this room, and might even be the majority of us in this room, uh, there was a slower process that took place. And when we reflect on what we see here, uh, and we see what was read here, we might be saying to ourselves, especially when we look at verse 3, well, that sounds like not exactly where I was, at least externally. Because externally, you sort of looked the part. You looked the part. You appeared to be a good husband or wife. You appeared to be a good parent. You went to church. You were generous with your money. You served people in your community. You appeared to be kind. You appeared to work well and wisely. But inside, despite the fact that externally you looked like things were pretty good, inside you were dead. Your confidence for salvation wasn't in Christ alone. Your confidence, on the other hand, was your attempt at good works. And then one day you woke up and thought to yourself, I can't keep this up. I can't keep this up. I'm miserable. I don't even think that my external veneer of goodness can save me if God is truly holy. And there was this internal shift that occurred. When your confidence was no longer in yourself, but in Christ alone for salvation, the wrath of God that was on you because of your sin and the eternal hell that was promised to you uh, because of your trust in self or anything other than Christ, now on the outside, things didn't look like you were doing a 180, although internally there was absolutely a 180. Your good works were no longer your hope of salvation. Your good works became the fruit of Christ's saving work in you instead of what you wanted to trust in. Your works are not good and you will not be saved from the wrath of God if you trust good works. But when you trust Christ for salvation, you have been given now the capacity or the ability for good works. And you will be saved from the wrath of God, not because of works done, but because of the mercy of God. If the wrath of God is an impending hurricane, then trusting in your good works to get you through it is like an umbrella made of Kleenex. And if, but if, on the other hand, the wrath of God is an impending hurricane, Christ is an impenetrable fortress. The believers in Crete, if we think of these as two different categories, if we think of the people who who, whose lives did a 180 both internally and externally, and people whose lives did an internal 180, but externally things look or appear to be similar. We see that believers in Crete fell into that first category. Their lives, both internally and externally, needed to do a 180. They knew that when Titus is ministering to these, in these churches in Crete, they knew that nothing of Christ. They knew nothing of Christ, and they literally nothing like, they lived nothing like Christ commanded them to live in the world. There were none who fell sort of into the second category. The category, the category that we have because our culture, or we've, we've benefited from, from, this, uh, from this culture that's heavily shaped by Christendom. We have these ideas of morality because of a couple thousand years of Christianity. And this is the difference between us, or a difference between us and Crete, Buffalo City Church and Crete. Many of you looked pretty good externally. And when you trusted Jesus, again, although that dramatic internal change occurred, 
many external things looked pretty similar. It wasn't the acts themselves that changed all that much, but the motivation for those acts was completely different. And the acts themselves are now good. And so even though we may not look externally much like Cretans, we're just like Cretans at the same time. We all fell into a category where we were what's described in verse 3, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That describes every person prior to Christ. Prior to Christ. That describes every single one of us. And so the goal of this passage is for us to reflect on where we came from, what Jesus brought us out of, and what he's done for you. And so if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. No matter what you look like externally, no matter what you look like externally prior to trusting Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the truth about what was going on inside of you was no different than the most heinous criminal, the most murderous dictator, the most unashamed adulterer, the most envious neighbor, the most slanderous citizen, the most corrupt politician, and the list goes on and on. We all found ourselves dead and under the wrath of God prior to Christ. And if you object and you say, I wasn't that bad, the goal here is to say that stop trusting in the fact that you didn't look that bad. Stop trusting in the fact that externally things looked okay because inside you were rotting. The goal here is that you would see what the word of God says about your position prior to Christ and that you would trust it, trust that truth, regardless of how you feel. Your feelings and, and, and perceptions are in fact polluted by sin. Your emotions don't get a free pass. You need perfect perception. And guess what, friends? We have the perception of God before us this morning, telling us where we were, telling us where Christ brought us. The perfect perception that we need for our lives comes to us in God's word right here in this letter to Titus. And these are very words of Christ breathed out for our benefit, even us. 2,000 years later. So, this morning, I'm going to walk through this passage and three things will guide our time together. Uh, The first is this, our problematic past position. The second thing, Christ's preeminent appearing. And finally, our present passionate piety. Lots of P words this morning. I hope they stick. Okay. So the first thing this morning is our problematic past position. Look at verse 3 in chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul's aim in verse 3 is to paint a picture of every person's past. I want to point out that he writes, look at verse right at the beginning, for we, for we. The we here, Paul is talking about the apostles. For we ourselves, and the apostles were eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. And the word means sent one. It's 
someone who is sent by Jesus. And these men were sent by Jesus to carry out the first wave of taking the gospel to, the, to, to all people. And you can read about the apostles in the book of Acts and much of, if not all of the New Testament is written by apostles. So the we, if you see that word here, the word we matters. Don't just skim over it. The word we is made emphatic by saying then ourselves. We ourselves. Yes, us, even us, is what Paul is saying. The apostles. Yes, even we ourselves fell into the categories that I'm about to talk about. The intent is to show us that even those who are sent by Christ, witnesses of, eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, weren't chosen because they were doing pretty well by themselves already. It wasn't because they were doing pretty well, because if we look at their past, we know much of the, about their pasts. Many of these men were tax collectors. They were religious zealots. They were simple fishermen. And they were, like in Paul's case, Pharisees who orchestrated the murder of Christ followers. So Paul is saying, don't think that there are pretty good people and Jesus picks those ones. Don't think that. That's the, that, that might be where you think in your mind, uh, well, these guys, the apostles, they were, they were pretty good. They were pretty good people. But Paul is saying, no, even us, even we ourselves were once these things that are listed in verse 3. Don't think that pretty good people are the ones that Jesus picks. Jesus saves people with all kinds of pasts. And all those pasts are blanketed in sin, no matter what they look like externally. All of these paths, pasts are under the wrath of God. All the way from the apostle writing this letter, the apostle Paul, to the Cretan, lazy, glutton, adulterous drunkard who Jesus chose to save five minutes before this letter gets read. Brothers and sisters, your past may be littered with things that you regret. It may be littered with many things that you are not proud of. But if you're in Christ, don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus counts it against you. If you are in Christ, don't make the mistake of thinking that your past is something that Jesus Christ counts against you. Because Jesus Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to cover all of it and to forgive you fully. It's counted against you no longer. But also, don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus saved you because you looked like you were doing pretty well on your own. Not at all. Everyone was dead in sin. No matter how good you looked prior to Christ, you were still dead. Lipstick on a pig doesn't mean it's not a pig. Saul looked the part of a king, but it's David who sits on the throne of Christ forever. Or excuse me, David. Christ who sits on David's throne forever. So Paul goes on to describe the problematic position we all prior in Christ, prior to Christ. And he says multiple things here in verse 3. He says, first, we were foolish. And outside of Christ, you could not know true wisdom. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
verse 30, Paul says that Jesus is our wisdom. That Jesus Christ is, in fact, wisdom incarnate. The wisdom of God is known to all is, is known to all who are in Christ and is completely unknown to those who are outside of Christ. Because the ways of the world are not the ways of God. The wisdom of God says the last will be first. The wisdom of God says that the poor are actually the rich. The wisdom of God chooses those who are low and despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. The way of the world is not the way of Christ. And the only way to know wisdom is to know Christ. And so prior to knowing Christ, we were once all foolish. The second thing he says is that we were disobedient. And those who are outside of Christ are always questioning authority. In the garden, when the serpent approached Eve, he sought to undermine Eve's view of God's authority. And he leads in with the oldest trick in the book, did God actually say? And when Eve responds with did what God did say, the serpent undercuts. And Eve knew that if they ate of the fruit of the tree, that God would, God said that they would die. But what does the serpent say? He says, you will not surely die. You see this, that the skepticism of authority is the oldest trick in the book. It's as old as sin. Do I really need to obey and submit to those in authority to me? And that's what Titus has been talking about in chapters 2 and 3. The question is a satanic one. Because it says, surely God doesn't know what he's doing and putting people in authority over me. Either in civic life, in, in, your, in your home life, in the life of the church. Surely God doesn't know what he's doing, putting this person in authority over me. This is a, a question that goes all the way back to the garden and the first sin. Satan is a two-ish, two-ish trick pony. He, uh, he twists God's word. See that time and time again in scripture. And he accuses, slanders, and deceives. He doesn't have a bag full of tricks that he's going to pop a new one off on you. No. These are the things that he has in his arsenal. But in Christ, you can obey God and you can obey those who God has placed in authority over you in each sphere of life. Foolish, disobedient. Third, we were led astray. And outside of Christ, every idea might seem like an okay one. That seems fine, you may think, as someone presents you with an idea, but those who are in Christ receive a firm foundation on which to build and are guided by the Good Shepherd himself. Fourth, Paul says we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. For those whose God is their belly, whatever seems good in the moment will dictate what they do. What do I feel right now in this moment? And then they will choose that thing. The shifting culture, the false teaching, stir something inside of us and it causes action. 
We're constantly in our world told to do what we are passionate about. But when those things don't align with God's word, they become self-aggrandizing and self-centered. And when self is at the center, we've made ourselves into little gods to be ruled by whatever feels right at the moment. But our feelings aren't the compass for what, how, what action we should take. Our feelings aren't the compass for God's godly living. God's word is. And those who are in Christ have eyes to see that their gut is a really, gives really bad directions. Fifth, Paul says, We were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Our life outside of Christ was looking over the fence in discontentment. Angry that others had what we did not. Frustrated because we felt like whatever was parked in their driveway was what we deserved. We don't enjoy hanging out with malicious and envious people. But a world full of people who have these traits is a world that will turn its in on itself in hate. Hating, hated by others. Hating one another. But in Christ, contentment for us has come. And when we're, where we're content with all that God is for us in Jesus, we no longer gripe about what wanting more in this earthly realm. How could those who have received all things in Christ complain about or covet the things that our neighbor has, which will return to dust, will go to the junkyard or the landfill? Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The things in this realm are so temporary compared to the things in eternity that they become nothing. And so if you look at this list and you say, I wasn't that bad before Christ. I was a nice person. No, no, you, you, were that, you were that bad. The word of God gives you the proper perspective on who you were and what God saved you out of. You say, I'm a nice person, but a corpse in a designer three-piece suit is still, in fact, a corpse. This was our problematic position. But then we see the good news, beginning in verse 4. This is Christ's preeminent appearing. Look at verse 4. Paul writes, but, telling us now that he's shifting the conversation. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. This is Jesus Christ. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. When Jesus came into the world, everything changed for sin-sick people. Everything changed for you, for me, for Titus, for Paul, for everyone in Crete, and for everyone in this room this morning. If humanity was not in the position described in verse 3, Christ would not have come into the world. But everyone was. No one is righteous. No, not one. And Paul says that the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. Jesus Christ took on flesh. For us, it is the goodness and loving kindness of God that he chose to redeem us, to make a way for us, 
Because we weren't just far, far gone. We were all the way gone. Swallowed by sin. Fully corrupted by us. And the way that God does this, the way that God saves us, is by sending Jesus into the world to live the perfect life that we could not and die the death in our place that we deserve. And Paul makes it clear again that those that we are saved not by our works, not by our law-keeping. Look at verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. But what's the alternative? But, by, but according to his mercy. According to his mercy, God saved us. You didn't strong arm God into saving you. You didn't conjure up a bunch of, a string of really good days. Were you really kind to people? Were you kept the law really, really closely? And then God was like, that one, I choose him. That's the one. James chapter 2 verse 10 warns us. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. And don't be mistaken. No one has ever lived, save the person of Jesus Christ, no one has ever lived where they kept God's law at every turn and then just slipped up one time. It's not like James is writing. It's not like we're just like a triple away from hitting the cycle. And then we get thrown out at third, the last out of the ninth inning. Shoot, I just about hit for the cycle. I just about kept God's law at every point. No, like we don't even know what baseball is. Your, your baseball glove is in a tub in the garage somewhere, packed away neatly, then you'll never see it again, eaten by moths, and you don't even remember what the game of baseball is. You're not even close. Don't make the mistake of thinking you're basically good. The Bible is clear, you're not. Paul says in Romans that if you're not in Christ, that means that you are in Adam, the one who sinned, the one who through you inherited sin. Just like you inherited your eye color from your parents, you inherited sin from your first parent, Adam. Romans 5.19 says, By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You couldn't help but transgress God's law. And then what hope is there then? Because in Adam, you're a real natural sinner. Like you do it naturally. You just fall into it. If you pick up a hobby and it goes really well and you're like, wow, I'm a real natural at this. You're a real natural sinner. It's encoded in your DNA, and you can't just blame Adam because you really like it too. It feels really good. It really feels really good to question authority. It feels really good to live according to the wisdom of the world. Sometimes it feels like you're doing exactly what you should be doing because inside you've created this world. Where sin is natural to you. But the hope here is right here in verse 5. 
but according to his own mercy. The mercy of God. God saves you according to his mercy. Not because of your works. God was under no obligation to you. He wasn't being manipulated or coerced in any way by some outside force. And so the action he took you in saving you was entirely of his own volition. He didn't give you what you deserved. You deserved an eternity of him pouring out his wrath on you because of your sin. But God was merciful towards you. The hope and the washing of regeneration. To regenerate is to make alive again. And the same idea when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and tells him that you must be born again. When Paul says that we all were made alive in Christ, or when Paul says that we are a new creation, this is the idea. New life, made new. In Adam we were dead. In Christ we were raised to walk in newness of life. And even in this passage here, there is this allusion to baptism by the washing of regeneration. Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, baptism saves no one, but it's a picture of salvation. It's a picture of an individual who is dead in their transgressions and sins being made alive in Christ. It's a picture of being raised to new life in Christ. When you pop out of the water, you remember or you're reminded that Jesus has given us spiritual life where we were once dead. And then the last day, we're reminded on the last day, we'll pop out of the grave too. And then we are told the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The mercy of God shown to us in the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 6, we're told that he has poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You don't just get a sliver of it. You get a rich portion of it. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to give us new life in Christ. This is our hope. It's the hope that in Christ we have been saved according to God's work mercy, not according to our good works. And because of that, he sent Jesus into the world to take our punishment on the cross. And we are given all of his benefits in exchange. And Paul outlines the benefits. In verse 6, or 7, excuse me. We are justified by his grace. That means our sin is forgiven. And we are given right standing with God. And we are heirs. We are adopted into God's family. We're no longer his enemies. We're written directly into the will. And the will has written in it eternal life. So when we were in our problematic position, heirs of death as children of Adam, Jesus appeared and coming into the world, he died so that we would become heirs of life. Our problematic past position, Christ's preeminent appearing, and finally, our present passionate piety. So here we are, we get to verse 8. This has been the thrust of our time together in Titus, in this short letter. Paul says, this, the saying is trustworthy. And then he tells Titus to insist on these things. What does he want Titus to insist on? He wants him to insist on the gospel. 
And if you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I've heard all of this before and I'm cool with it. You need to continually be ingesting the truth of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Continually be recognizing because you're going to drift into these positions where you think my good works are what's going to keep this up. I was perfected in the spirit. Now I'll be perfected in the flesh and I'm going to buckle down and I'm going to try really hard to do the things that are, that are pleasing to God. But you can't. You need a firm foundation, the sound doctrine that stands at the foot of, that stands at the base of your life. As our life as a church Titus needs to insist on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel isn't just good vibrations that come to your way when you open up your Bible and, and peer in it and wonder what's going on. The, the, the Bible isn't just a message that God didn't make you pretty good. The gospel is the message that you were dead and God has made you alive in Christ. The gospel is the reality not not just the rea- not just the me- the reality that you were dead in Christ and that every single person in this room and on this planet save the one person the one man Jesus Christ found themselves in the position that is described in verse 3 in our text the gospel is the reality that every single one of us was dead in our sin and no matter how We tried to dress it up on the horizon was a tsunami that was scheduled to wipe us out. And it was bad, like really bad. And there was no hope at all. But God's wrath set against us. But in his mercy, God sent Jesus Christ who died in your place. And now you've become a son. You've become an heir of eternal life written into the will. So why does Titus need to insist on the gospel? Why does... Paul write to him and say, insist on these things. Why does sound doctrine matter so much? Well, this is right at the heart of the letter. Look in verse 8. You're going to see the words, so that. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. What Paul isn't saying is devote yourself to good works so that you can get the attention of God so that he'll save you. No, he already established in verse 5 that you are saved not because of works done. But when you are saved, you are saved so that you may be careful to devote yourself to good works. We are made new. Our passions are made new too. The shift away from what we want and uh, now begins to land firmly on what God wants. You may want something that God has no intent to give you. Your will needs to be aligned now with God's will. You may want to live according to a worldly standard, but God has a different standard. And when you're in Christ, and when you're uh, when you are redeemed by Jesus Christ, your will, your work, your passions begin to line up with God's. God saves us to be devoted to good works. I use the word piety in the point, and piety is a bit dated and oftentimes even gets like a bad rap in our world. Let's reclaim it. It's also a P word, which made it fit nicely in with the points. 
Um, but it communicates deep reverence for a task, an unwavering devotion. God didn't save you to do your own thing because you would still be ruled by your own passions. Rather, God saved you to reflect his passions in the world. What are the passions that God has saved you to reflect? Spreading the fame of his name all over the earth. God is passionate about his glory. Over and over again, this letter has taught us that we must live according to God's word because what we say we believe has to match how we live. And when we live in a way that is inconsistent with the gospel, the word of God is reviled. What we believe is clearly seen in how we live. So, I hope you've seen the flow of this passage. Our position that was problematic. Every single individual in this room completely opposed to God and his word. Regardless of how we looked on the outside. Internally, making good works our confidence means that we are opposed to God. And then God sent Jesus to save us. And he saved us for a purpose so that we might be careful to devote ourselves to good works, so that we might be careful to, to, to see our wills aligned with God's. So here are a couple of questions as we wrap up this morning. First is this. Is your motivation for good works because you're attempting to make them your confidence or because you desire to show Christ as your confidence? What ensures that eternal life belongs to you? Again, do you think it's because you're doing pretty well in your day-to-day? Or is it because you are in Christ? In Christ, forgiven of your sin, clothed in Christ's righteousness. And genuinely ask yourself this question this week. Sit down with your spouse. Go to community group and talk about this. Am I relying on good works for my salvation from my sin? Do I think that the good things that I do make me right with God? If this is you, come to Christ. Return to Christ. His word can correct your error. Ask the Holy Spirit to use God's word to expose the error. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Holy Spirit will in those moments illuminate to you steps that you are taking that are leading into the ditch or crossing over the center line into oncoming traffic. Make Jesus Christ your confidence. Jesus Christ is the only one who can save you from your false confidence in good works. Second, Are you concerned that your past will prevent Jesus from ultimately saving you? Friend, if that's you this morning, if you found yourself in a terrible position and many things that you did that were in line with a heart that was far from God, polluted by sin, be assured of the sufficiency of Christ. Jesus is sufficient. He is sufficient to redeem you of your infinite debt of sin. Let me say that again. 
He is sufficient to redeem you from your infinite debt of sin. His blood is sufficient to wash everything, every sin off of you forever, for all of eternity. His death is sufficient to provide you life that never ends, ever, for all of eternity. And we sometimes use the word sufficient as like good enough. We say like, would you want one panini or two? And I would say, well, I, I, one will be one sufficient. But that's not what we're talking about here. That's not quite what we mean when we say Jesus is sufficient. Christ is sufficient to ensure infinite, eternal things for all of you, for all of us. Not just what's good enough to satisfy this temporary hunger that we have in our tummy. You think your past sin will keep you from redeeming or from, Christ, from God redeeming you in Christ. You think you need to do penance or to make it up for some process of self-flagellation. But the call here is this. Abandon your unbelief and crumb to Christ. He alone can save you and rejoice. Beating yourself up over your past will not earn you anything. In Christ, you are forgiven of your sin and free to live according to the good works that were prepared beforehand so that you might walk in them. Christ, Jesus Christ, is sufficient. Are you concerned that your past will prevent Jesus from saving you? Jesus Christ is sufficient. Finally, brothers and sisters, are you passionately devoted to good works? Are you, as the one who has been saved by God's mercy, appearing in the person of Jesus Christ, are you careful to devote yourself to good works? It's easy to do some Christian-looking things in your day-to-day life. But if you've been tracking through chapters 2 and 3, as we've looked at this letter, and you're thinking that the stuff Paul is telling Titus to do to instruct those in Crete are just some soft suggestions about how to be a better person and have a happy life, then you've missed the point. These are not soft suggestions. They are representative of the good works that are produced in those who are in Christ, who are the recipients of God's mercy, who have been, wa- who have been regenerated, uh, who have been wa- the recipients of the washing of regeneration, who are the recipients of the renewal of the Holy Spirit, those who have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, those who are in Christ, those who have believed the gospel, they see what's written in these chapters and they long to put them on. Older, more mature believers investing in younger believers, exhibiting godly conduct in our vocational work, in our civic life, fighting to live lives in accordance with sound doctrine so that the church may be strengthened against false teaching and so the church might be resilient against cultural conformity. That's what this is about. You're not looking at a list of things to try and accomplish in your own strength. You're looking at a list of things that are representative of what a life that looks like that is put on Christ, that is in Christ. Rejoice, therefore, in these things. And love putting on Christ's likeness. It's God's kindness to us that we know exactly what a life that is pleasing to God looks like. These things aren't burdensome. 
But in our homes, in the church, in our work, as earthly citizens, we know what it looks like. We know what a life that flows out of sound doctrine looks like. They're not burdensome. They're the very thing that we were created for. And when sin robbed us of our purpose and told us to just live for yourselves, Christ saved you from the path of destruction that you were running down and set you on a path that is pleasing to God. This is a path illuminated by God's word. May we now, as those who have, been, who have received mercy through the person of Jesus Christ and his glorious appearing, as those who have been regenerated, as those who have been renewed, passionately and carefully devote ourselves to good works in every area of life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it is so clear to us exactly how we are to live in light of the gospel. But God, would you cause us not to forget the gospel? God, would you cause us not to think to ourselves, I know that, that's good and well, but would you drive us into deeper understanding of who we were and what Jesus came into the world to do? For those of us in this room who are tempted to trust in our good works, would you remove that from us even in these very moments? God, for those of us who are tempted to believe that Jesus can't save us because of our past, would you, would you root out our unbelief and cause us to see Jesus Christ as wholly sufficient? God, cause us now as your people to desire your ways above ours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.